Across the northwestern province of Xinjiang, an estimated one million Chinese Muslims have vanished into a vast network of detention centers for what China calls re-education. One million... The United Nations and a number of human rights groups have accused the Chinese government of setting up large re-education camps in the far west Xianjing province to hold an unknown number of ethnic Uyghurs and other Muslims. Some estimates put the population at the camps up to two million. Welcome to the February 28th, 2019 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. The realities facing the Uyghur population in Western China are grabbing headlines around the world, as reports of re-education camps have emerged in the recent years. Germany's DW News reported on one detainee who, speaking to Amnesty International, gave us a little glimpse at what happens inside those camps. We had to sing for hours. Songs like, without the Communist Party, there would be no new China. Or songs praising Mao Zedong. And we were forced to repeat slogans about the greatness of President Xi Jinping. And what a great place China is to live in. The facts are undoubtedly upsetting and the situation doesn't appear to be improving. One artist, Lisa Ross, inadvertently found herself documenting the Uyghur homeland years before life for the community changed forever. She currently has an exhibition titled I Can't Sleep, Homage to a Uyghur Homeland, and it's on view at Miyako Yoshinaga Gallery in Manhattan's Chelsea Gallery District. I invited her to our studio to learn more about her work, but also what she witnessed in Western China. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Harag. So, Lisa, you know, I just learned of your work, so I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it's pretty recent for me, but I was really taken by this project and by your work in a place that unfortunately is in the headlines of media agencies all around the world for not really good reasons right now. The Western part of China, of course, is not something that most people travel to, so it's a pretty unique project. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what was it about the Uyghur homeland? that attracted you? Or how did you even discover the region in terms of someplace you wanted to work? Well, in 1999 and 2000, I had been traveling in North Africa. I was very uh, intrigued by the desert and making work in Sahara and Sinai. Mm -hmm. And actually, my friend was the line producer on Kill Bill, the Quentin Tarantino film, which they shot in Beijing. And they invited me to come to China. They had a suite for a year while they were shooting the film, and they invited me to come to China and just uh, do whatever I wanted. So after um, spending a few days on the set, I had read My Lonely Planet. And when I read about the Taklamakan Desert, ancient city ruins in the desert landscape, and the Uyghur people who I had never heard of at the time, I thought, that's it. And um, I jumped on a four-day train at the time, and I went out to what I knew at the time as Xinjiang. So, okay, so now I picture you're going, so wait, this is 2002. Yes. So 2002, you're, you've decided to take this trip out to this part of China that few people probably, I'm guessing, in your circle had ever encountered. True. You arrived there by train, plane? Yes, I, I arrived there by train. Well, wow, that's quite a journey. It was quite a journey. I was the only foreigner on the train as far as I knew. And I didn't speak Mandarin, nor did I speak the Uyghur language. So it was kind of baffling. So did it take you two days to get there? Helen? Four days at four the time. Days. Now there's a quicker train, but at that time it was four days. So from Beijing to get to the, to the region. Now, what was your first impression? I mean, clearly, you're going through this land. I'm guessing it, it was pretty barren. From what I've seen, some lot of the photos, there's like, it's a very, I mean, even though there's hilly, it, there seems to be a lot of space. There's a lot of space. <laughs> <laughs> and people drive very fast. And I had no idea what was safe, what wasn't safe. I couldn't, right. I couldn't read any sort of signs. But I just had this very loud uh, voice in my head that kept telling me that I was supposed to be on this journey.
journey. And, um, you know, as an artist, the work that I had been making in the deserts was all black and white, large uh, mural printing, kind of like large landscapes. Very much, I was using a high-speed black and white film, so a lot of it was about the grain of the sand and the grain of the sky, Mm -hmm. and um, it was just these very ethereal photographs. So I was drawn by this idea that there were ancient city ruins somewhere in this desert. Where did you disembark from your train? A small village. (laughs) Uh, I believe it was called Dahayan, but I can't promise you that. At the time, Tuatapan did not have a train station, and they now do. So you had to get off at this small village and then get in some kind of minibus where I was again, the only foreigner. And at one point, everybody got out of the bus, except for me. And I realized that they were crossing a river. And um, they just sort of, they needed to lighten the weight. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that was my first, uh, the first stop was, that first year, the first stop was Totopan. Wow. So what was your impression in general? I mean, I imagine that, you know, especially if you don't speak the language, How did you get around? How did you navigate? What did you feel like in retrospect? What do you think compelled you to take that journey? I mean, a four-day journey to a part of the country that you've never been to and you don't speak the language isn't exactly something everybody wants to do. Right. I was very... I was very compelled, and there were a lot of reasons. Some I could share. It was uh, post 9-11, and Mm -hmm. I had been traveling in these um, Muslim countries in North Africa, Egypt, Morocco, and I was prior to 9-11. And this shift happened after 9-11, and I was really determined to continue making work in these it was interesting to me that it was, again, a Muslim region, Mm -hmm. and it was out in China, which was very unexpected. And so that was one of the things that was driving me. I was creatively driven. I was spiritually driven. It was Mm. a very kind of spiritual journey for me. And maybe that's why I ended up in the holy sites. Yeah, I had a saint here, actually, um, which was Father Michael Judge, who a lot of us know was the first victim in 9-11. He was a gay priest. He's someone that I knew, Mm. and I sort of carried him with me while I was walking throughout this journey. And I really, you know, on this very like deep level felt that there was a reason that I was out here. And so I just kept going, even though it was actually kind of a difficult time because I had not been traveled alone in that way before in a place that I really, it was all intuition. Everything was intuition. But I did keep seeing things that I was, I guess, blown away by. Do you want to share some of those things you were blown away by? Yeah. So when I got to Turpan, I actually did find the ancient cities. There are two ancient cities in Turpan. And in 2002, they were tourist sites, but they were still largely very rustic, where now they're built up. What's happened over time is Chinese companies have come out to Xinjiang and turned a lot of the sites into kind of more... Disneyland type of tourist sites. Mm. But at the time, it was very rough, which I appreciated because didn't mean I w- meant I was not going to be photographing kind of plastic or weird signage. And so the ruins were really amazing to look at. It was during that early traveling that I ended up seeing beds in the middle of these very barren landscapes, mm-hmm. which I actually saw before I ended up in a holy site. And so I photographed some of these beds in the barren landscape. And it wasn't really until I got home that I looked at these photographs and I thought, what are these beds doing out here? Are there so, so I so think <laughs> I think people because you know people are going to be listening to this, so they may yes. quite not quite understand what we're talking about yet. Yes, and hopefully they will go see your show. But the images are, I mean, eerie is the word. I think there are these rustic-looking beds that are sort of placed in the middle of the landscape with nothing around. That's correct. So, what? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was like, what? (laughs) And then the next year that I went back, uh, because that was 2002, I next went back in 2004, I thought, I have to find those two beds that I saw on the landscape. And when I went back, I realized, oh my gosh, there are beds everywhere 
on rooftops, in front of houses, in fields, kind of just like everywhere. Somehow I hadn't seen it the first time. And all over, all over that part of the world, Central Asia, India, Pakistan, Persia, it's not uncommon for people to sleep in sure, beds outdoors. outdoors. Yeah. But in Torpan, it's so hot. Um, it's one of the lowest points on the earth below sea level that it's just tradition that everybody sleeps outside. So what's interesting is the harvest over the summer is grapes. And people traditionally made raisins, not wine. Maybe a little bit of wine, but not a lot of wine. It's a Muslim culture. So people would dry grapes throughout the summer. What I found was in the areas where people were drying grapes, their beds were out in these barren landscapes. Ah. They weren't near their homes. They were sleeping where they worked. And so um, these kind of what we would see as a lunar landscape or something. Right. The beds were left there all summer long. They were on rooftops all summer long. But why are they alone? That's the part that was kind of, you know, because I would assume if we're talking about a group of people, there would be many beds, right, right. beside each other or almost like a dormitory or something, you know, yeah. or a campsite. <laughs> so in some places, like, for example, where there is like apartment housing, then in the courtyards, there are like, you'll see like 50 beds, you know, all lined up. But where people are working as farmers, the beds are just kind of spread out and they're not necessarily near each other. Sometimes mm. you'll have three beds together. Sometimes there's just one bed. In the exhibition, there's a woman on a blue bed mm -hmm. in the current exhibition. And there were probably about 10 beds in a whole huge area, but they weren't together. Everybody was sort of scattered about. Nobody felt compelled to sleep next to their favorite person. <laughs> there were a few close. <laughs> there were a few close, and then there were others that were scattered. Yeah. And so now, out of curiosity, are these beds made by the people, or are these purchased? I mean, what there is, is they are made. Um, there's a traditional Uyghur bed that's made out of wood, mm -hmm. and it doesn't use um, nails or screws, and it's sort of a dovetail type of um, ah, bed. It's really beautiful. Gotcha. And then the more recent beds are made out of iron, and there are local workmen that are making those in the marketplaces. Incredible. So now you started photographing the shrines first, though, before the beds. Actually, the I've, beds were first. I mean, technically, technically, the beds were first. Okay, the beds were first. <laughs> but nothing was a project, right? The first year, everything was just. I, here I am as a traveler. I, I ended up going back for years and years and years to actually make what we would, what I would call a project, a body of work. Right. So the shrines were. I really wanted to go into the desert. And in order to go into the desert, I couldn't take a bus or a train. And so I ended up hiring a driver who was Hui, which is Chinese Muslim. And he understood that when I would say stop to photograph something, he sort of began to get a feeling of things that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he drove me to the edge of the desert, and he just kind of pointed in. And I just <laughs> was like, okay. And I didn't know where I was going. But I started seeing these little patches of color. So as I walked in, I started seeing these like wooden... It looked like... I, my first thought was Huckleberry Finn. It looked like a, a dried raft. Right. And the sand dunes looked like a dried riverbed. And because they had these blow these flags blowing in the wind, right. um, I was really, it felt like the ocean had just kind of dried up and there were these like ships. Um, so what are these? I mean, so I'm guessing these were part of the local Muslim culture, these shrines. Now, whose shrines are these? The shrines are called Mazar. Okay. Okay. And a Mazar means holy ground, holy site. And saints are buried in the larger markers at these holy sites. So the Uyghurs practice a form of Sufi Islam mm -hmm. historically. So typically somebody in their life would maybe perform miracles or heal the sick, mm -hmm. and they would become known as having special abilities. And so when they die, they would become a saint, a wow. local saint. And then the saint is known to be in a state of eternal sleep. And so they help the dead transition into the afterlife. So you would want to bury your family members as close to the saint as possible. Mm. And usually one of these holy sites is close to a village. So the way that Xinjiang is very interesting geologically because the Taklamakan Desert, which is really vast, 
is surrounded by mountain ranges mm -hmm. on the north and the south. So the oasis villages on the edge of the desert get water from these mountain ranges. So you have these sort of fertile um, oasis villages. Wow. And so most of the villages will have local saints. However, there are really important saints that are scattered throughout the desert in deeper parts of the desert. And Ryan Thumb published a book called Sacred Roots of the Uyghur, and that talks about how these holy sites connected people throughout this vast region and gave them a sense of unity and identity wow. as they would come from different parts of the region and meet at these holy sites. So the place that I first went to, Imami Asim, which I didn't know the name and I didn't know it was a holy site, I just was kind of blown away by everything that I saw. Animal skins, head of a ram on top of a stick. Yep. Um, and I thought, I don't know what this is, but I know I'm coming back. And I, I ended up meeting a French um, scholar of Central Asian Islam, a young man who was finishing his PhD, and he was writing about one of these saints, Apakoja, mm -hmm. whose tomb is very popular. Um, it's a tourist site in Kashgar. And when Alexander and I met, I shared where I had been, and he asked me to send him photographs. Um, and for a year, he taught me about the history of this region, the history of these pilgrimage sites. Amazing. And then he and I went back together. So you said that we're historically Sufi. Is that not no longer true, or is the, the Muslim culture of the region still predominantly Sufi? Right now, Islam and Sufism Everything is largely becoming illegal. Right. So this site, Imam Yasim, which I returned to many times. In 2005, I traveled there with Rahila Dawood, mm -hmm. who wrote this hagiography on the holy sites for her PhD work. And she is Uyghur and is teaching at Xinjiang University and runs the folklore department. And Rahila invited me to come and travel to this holy site in May, because in May, thousands of people go there on pilgrimage. And there's tightrope walkers and wrestlers and storytellers and magicians and food and a bazaar. So and a then, true religious festival <laughs> it was in, amazing. in all yeah. its different incarnations. Exactly. Yep. And in 2013, yep. that became illegal. That's oh, wow. Sad. So it became illegal to go there on pilgrimage. So um, you had a front row seat for what's been going on. Like, I mean, in many ways, because you've been traveling so many times there over the years. I mean, you know, before we start talking about the political situation and stuff, I want to talk about your work okay. specifically. How would you characterize the types of images you take and the type of, type of work you create? My sort of catchphrase that I've been somewhat comfortable with is portrait of a landscape. Okay. In large part because I see a lot of these markers as a portrait between the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. And so I began to photograph the landscape as though I was photographing a portrait. They remind me a lot of wishing trees, these, mm. these sort of knowing, like sort of the different traditions of wishing trees. So is that what those things tied to them are? Or what are those little fabrics that are tied to these shrines? The fabrics um, are usually a piece of um, material from someone's clothing okay. or scarf. And they bring it on pilgrimage when they go to the site to mark a prayer or a wish. So it's a way of saying, I, I was here. So I guess it is um, a little bit connected to that bigger tradition, that global tradition of wishing trees. That's wonderful. Now, there's a sharpness in your images, but there's also kind of um, the depth of focus really sort of, sort of blurs the backgrounds in a way and I'm wondering why you chose that as opposed to you know some portrait landscape photographers go for the crisp all-around image right and I'm curious what it was about that appealed to you right so when I use the term portrait of a landscape typically when you when you photograph a portrait of someone whether it's fashion or just portraiture there is this rule of thumb you can get rid of the rule of thumb, but that the mm -hmm. eyes should be in focus and everything else could be out of focus. And that's sort of how I began to think of the landscape. Like there was something that needed to be in focus, but sometimes the rest had to fall out of focus in order for that thing to take priority or precedence in the right. image. Something tells me that the palette of these photos also really appealed to you because there's something about the palette here that seems very rich, 
but I don't know. I'm curious what you thought about the colors. In yeah, the- that was crazy because I, you know, I started photographing when I was 12, built a dark room at 13, you know, taught photography for years. Clearly you were a you know, I was like as really a, a black and white. <laughs> I was like such a black and white photographer and this project wanted to be in color and it was <laughs> really driving me crazy because um, I'm not a, co- I didn't consider myself a color photographer, if you would say, but yeah, so at some point I was shooting black and white and color and I was shooting film and as time evolved and digital came into play and I I just slowly began to have control of the medium mm-hmm. in color. I wasn't having that with film, with color film. And so that's kind of how I transitioned into color. The The palette is what the landscape was. So the kind of how do how do you describe that palette um it's almost like sand or like this kind of earthy earthy palette it it is i mean and the desert that is the desert yeah and and yet you know the color that comes into it is very much connected to uyghur culture and uyghur life you know like women the atles which is the uyghur fabric like color is very important in a lot of uyghur clothing for women and so i noticed with the markers that the fabric was not it was often colored and i would um so anyway so i guess that kind of right answers your question okay now how do you think it fits into your bigger body of work because clearly it's not the only series you're doing Right. I would say a lot of my work historically has been about intimacy. Mm. And even prior to landscape, in fact, I never was even interested in landscape, not the urban landscape, not natural landscape. I was very much interested in, um, you know, I came of age during the time of Nan Golden and Larry Clark and, you know, photographers that were getting inside their own communities. Mm-hmm. And I created a program for LGBT youth. And it was very much about these young people photographing their idea of who they were, who What's their the program? Is. I'd love to hear about that. Um, it was part of the Harvey Milk School and the Hetrick Martin oh, Institute. So yeah. I started that in 1989. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, I ran that program through 98, and we had a lot of support from the arts community, Robert Gober, Nan Golden, and many different galleries and artists that helped that program prosper. And you're joined by your collaborator, Anthony. Did you want to introduce Anthony, who's also a fellow artist and who you've been working with? Yes, um, this is Anthony Varali. He's a good friend of mine. He's a painter, and at the recent exhibition, the first days of the exhibition, we had performative interventions honoring the disappeared musicians, poets, and writers. And Anthony collaborated with Mukadas Majit, who was born in Urumqi and is a Uyghur ethnomusicologist, dancer, musician, pianist, filmmaker, and she and I have been collaborating together, and she had this dream that Anthony, who I know as a painter, was also a musician, and that they would be collaborating together. Wonderful. So we'll include Anthony into the conversation. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you very much. Fantastic. So, Anthony, I'm going to bring you in now into this conversation. You sort of joined this project just recently. Is that correct? Yes, very recently, and um, in uh, in a very indirect way. I know Lisa um, as a friend mm-hmm. and as a as an artist. And a uh, short while ago, we I took a big space up in the Bronx as a, a live workspace, and Lisa was looking for a space. She answered the ad, not knowing it was me. And then it was like, oh, it's you. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> and uh, so we share a space. It's separate. That's great. But it has a beautiful kitchen in the middle. So we meet several times a day as we're working. That's and, convenient. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, we share about our work. And I knew that Lisa's work centered at the moment that I met her on this region of China. I had also been reading a couple articles in the paper, the Times, mm-hmm. regarding the Uyghurs and what was going on. Yeah. And also with the way they were using surveillance, because yeah. it's the first place in the world and China's doing it for the first time and they're doing their experiment. In that region, which is they're doing facial recognition, everyone has to have their face scanned, they get their genetic fingerprint, everything, and everybody's life is controlled. I didn't realize that the Uyghurs themselves 
what I now know, mm-hmm. that there's a cultural genocide going on right. there, if not more. So long yeah. story short, y'all go ahead. No, I was going to ask you. What did you think of the project? Because, you know, you have the privilege of having, you know, seen this project for a while and sort of lived with it, essentially, <laughs> or, or lived adjacent to it. And I'm kind of curious your sort of take on this, because, you know, like you said, there's like this whole aspect of it that's like almost the ghosts of the story. You know, it's like because some of these images you take may not be there anymore, right? This might be the only record, or maybe some of the only records. I don't know, Lisa. What did you? What do you think? Because it seems like Anthony wants to pass over the question to you. <laughs> no, I mean I can answer it also. <laughs> okay, well let, let's let uh, Lisa, and then I'll ask yeah. you as well. Oh, well, I did. I hadn't. You know, as I worked on this project, I became very involved with people from the region. Mm-hmm. And although my friend Rahila always told me to be very careful, mm-hmm. um, and I have some stories about that, I didn't realize in a short time that all of these places would, you know, possibly disappear, right. which seems to be happening, and that the people that I was close to would be under such incredible threat. I, I really didn't realize, like, the exhibition that we have up now, it's the first time that I've included people in photographs, and it just became important to do that and mm. to show the face of who the Uyghurs are. And, you know, over the years that I've been, my work has changed, and it became important for me to collaborate with artists from the region. So for the past four years, I started working with artists from the region, particularly uh, Mukadas Majit, who I referred to earlier, and this video that was screened recently at Janice Sky Space called Rise, which is a 15-minute video of people awakening on rooftop beds to the day. Mm. And it's called Rise for different reasons, but one of them is just the freedom to sleep where you want, to move your body as you want, and to do what you want. And that in and of itself is now under threat. The whole project, everything has like completely changed at the time that Anthony entered because now it's there's an urgency that we yeah, have to talk about absolutely. what's happening. And so the project that he can fill you in on, you know, we had for three days people in the gallery crying. Right. So I'm going to. So Anthony, do you want? To, uh, what, what's your take on this? I mean, we can't get into all the details of every project, but I would love to hear a little bit of your take. Well, I'm just going to speak from what I saw. Sure. I think that Lisa, what she was originally attracted to, she tried to stay apolitical and that the situation overtook that and the urgency to say something. And these photos that she had shared a little bit with me of people on their beds, mm-hmm. because before it was the beds in the landscape mm-hmm. or the, the, the shrines in the landscape, this was what she presented to the world as portraits, but without the people. And she had a bit of a struggle, I think, presenting the people. Also, considering what's going on, that she isn't one of them. She's mm-hmm. she's a Westerner, like right. I am. Right. Yet, this is a special situation. The people outside of China that are Uyghur can't really speak for themselves because their families are at risk. Right. So there's, it's almost, there's a silence going on And Lisa had these ghosts of the past that are disappearing. And it came together. And Mukadas is her main collaborator. I had met Mukadas at the studio. They were working on maybe on Rise, right? We had talked in the kitchen. And when Lisa decided that she was going to do this this exhibition called I Can't Sleep, which included the pictures of the beds in the landscape, but with people, Mm-hmm. Mukadas was going to come over and collaborate to do interventions. And one of the things they needed was a musician. Mukadas had a dream that I was doing the music. And Lisa knows me as a painter. <laughs> Lisa said, well, I don't, think, you know, I don't think Anthony plays music. So she comes into my studio and goes, I just got off the phone with Mukadas. She had a dream that you were collaborating with us doing the music. And I told her, you don't do music. And I said, yeah, I do music. And it was just so natural for us all to work together. Oh, that's great. And I got drawn in so deeply, and the work with Mukadas and with Lisa was just just naturally fell into place. Wonderful. And finally, we did. We came up, the concept which uh, Lisa and Mukadas had was to do a piece. Each piece we did, we developed four or five pieces that were presented at the gallery and the opening and on the first three days of I Can't Sleep, which honored a disappeared artist, scholar, or musician. 
they were performances, they were they were dance, and they were music. Okay. And Lisa can probably fill you in on that evolution from into something that's very emotional and political, and how it's affected the the Uyghur community okay. that's around us. So, Lisa, let's talk a little bit about your travels. So, you went there in two thousand two. You went there in two thousand four. When else did you go? 2002, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, and 18. Wow. Yeah. So you saw a huge, I mean, why the big gap between 11 and 18? Good question. Is That that um, sounds like the, it's probably when all the stuff. There was gap, yeah. yeah. 2008 was the year of the Olympics. Okay. That's when you began to experience change. Oh. That's when I began to experience change. I was traveling around that summer with a student of Rahila's, we were getting stopped a lot mm. by police. And at one point, Rahila called us and said, come back to Arumchi. It's just not safe this year. And so although we did kind of travel extensively, there were times where I went into the desert alone. The student wouldn't come with me, um, my Why? friend. Because she, she said she had a weak heart. And she was afraid. <laughs> she really was uncomfortable. And I said, like, that's fine. Um, and it was very windy and the sand was blowing, but I was really determined to make this video. I also There's another video that I made that's called To Mark a Prayer. And I really had to be in the desert to make this video. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, you started seeing checkpoints. It was the year of the Olympics, and that was the year that the police presence was amped up. Wow. So up until 2008, though, it felt like there was it was pretty easy to get around. Yeah. I mean, up until 2008, I just traveled under the radar. It was really easy to get around. I mean, I ended up in a police station. They just asked a bunch of questions and, you know, took my passport. But nobody felt threatened, threatening. I, you know, it was a little scary. Even 2008 wasn't terrible, but I thought... Oh, I know what it was. 2008 was the year that they began to tear down the old city in Kashgar. Oh, right. Yeah. That was worse, much worse than any police stopping me. <laughs> because to see, it was like, you know, if you'd been to Fez or Marrakesh to see an old Medina torn down. Right. It was mind-boggling. Why would you do that? And why isn't the city a world monument? And how could it be torn down? And then suddenly there was like a a Chinese um, business company had set up a big red sign saying that you could pay to come in and see an ancient Uyghur village. But this is crazy because they're contemporary people, and it's a city that had been around for hundreds of years, and it was not a tourist site. So mm. to suddenly have to pay to go in to something that historically was part of the experience of Kashgar was really, really horrifying. You mentioned a little earlier about some incidents that sort of made you feel unsafe and made you wonder And I'm wondering if you wanted to share some of those experiences that you had um, shooting in the Uyghur homeland and and just traveling around. You mean very early on? Yeah, early on or even later on. I mean, early on, it was just not knowing. Like, Uyghurs drive crazy fast. They don't anymore because (laughs) there are speed signs everywhere. I was like, why? They don't even have brakes on their cars. They just have horns. It's very funny. And that almost became enjoyable. You know, the longer I stayed, the more I was like, yeah, these like super fast taxi drivers and stuff. You know, really, really nothing was terribly scary. I, I did have a, a an experience with Rahila once where a friend, a, a family friend took us into a holy site and when we left and we were in a taxi driving I said you know please thank him for this like incredible day and he said to her she translated for me that he said don't thank me please tell your country what's happening and then she responded to him and I said what what did you say and she said that she told him "Um, I don't care these are your problems it doesn't matter to me I'm just here to take nice photographs And I was like, what? Why why would you ever say that? And she said, because we don't know who this taxi driver is. And who is this man? He's supposed to be my husband's friend, but we don't really know him. I was just in a holy site with a foreigner. Everybody in the village already knows. You just do your work. Cover your tracks, as they say. You don't make political work. You just, you're photographing the shrines and that's it. So now, fast forward 2011. 2011. 
you know, to be honest, I really, it was after the riots from 2009. I can say to you that with all the friends that I've made and all the communication I have had, a lot of the stories that I've read that come out in, in terms of interpretations of for the riots from 2009, that you... So the riots were Uyghurs rioting against Chinese authorities? Well, I mean, the riot that happened in Urumqi... What we know, the word that gets out in the papers is how many of the Han Chinese were killed by Uyghurs. But what we don't find out is how many Uyghurs were killed. And what we don't find out is that the Uyghurs were apparently, and of course there's always going to be two sides to every story, marching and the police started shooting at the Uyghurs. Right. There were a lot of rumors that Uyghurs were running around with needles and sticking them in Han Chinese with (sighs) HIV, which is just, it was never proven to be true. It's funny, that sounds like one of those rumors that you used to hear, you know, during the AIDS crisis, or at least the early years, like these crazy, wacky stories that would come out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what has historically gotten out to the media around the Uyghurs is filtered through a Chinese news casting. Mm -hmm. So I I knew that happened in 2009. When I went back in 2011, I went back with um, Alexander Pappas and his wife and daughter. He's the scholar that I had traveled with in 2004. This was a return trip because I had actually paid for part of his trip. He was a student then and he said, one day I will do this for you. Mm -hmm. So 2011 was our year where he took me. And that's the year that I made the Rise video. I had kind of finished really like I had been to so many shrines that I felt that if there was other work that if there was more work for me it would be something other and that is the time that I made the rise video which I'm not going to talk about right now okay yeah no (laughs) so 2011 so did you feel any more secure of the security apparatus was it much more no um, what I I saw in 2011 I largely spent my time in Chorpan What I saw in 2011 was a change in the landscape and a lot more investment in tourism, a kind of tourism. So I didn't see any more tourists, but I saw a city that had become honified, if you will. Mm -hmm. So there were parks built. There was a center that had classical music water fountains, bright lights everywhere. The landscape started changing, becoming tacky right. as opposed to the a, a Uyghur city, which it had been historically. So, I mean, I will, the tourist sites had changed as well. They became very, like, tourist sites on steroids. Hmm. The ancient cities I went back to were, had, you know, safety gates everywhere, and everything had just totally changed in that way. I didn't feel a kind of police presence or something happening around that. And 2018, this past summer when I went, that's when, I mean... Whole different world? Different world. Yeah. Can you explain it to people who may not know? Well, if you could imagine anyone that has seen a movie about China or visited China, you know what the bus stations are like or train stations. They're just, you know, people everywhere. Here, it was like a ghost town. Maybe there were 20, 25 people in the train stations. Everywhere that you went was full, like the train stations, the restaurants, shopping centers. Everywhere you go, you have to go through a checkpoint. And every few couple blocks, there's a police convenience station. Their police will set up a table, and when Uyghurs walk by, this was in Kashgar where I saw, everybody has to hand their phone over and their ID card. You can't go from village to village anymore without going through these police checkpoints that have full body scans for Uyghurs. Wow. Um, Did you have to also have full body scans? They didn't do full body scans for foreigners. There weren't any other foreigners. They sort of didn't know what to do with us (laughs) or our passports. They had to go to their guidebook (laughs) and be like, what do we do now? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I traveled with someone that had notoriety in the region. She's an American, but she had been on Uyghur television and was a singer American who had studied the language and the music. And so she had a bit of notoriety. So the police were interested in her because the police are young Uyghur men and women. And they would kind of like get excited and take selfies with her and let us go through areas that I don't think, you know, for short periods of time, five hours, okay, you can go into the city so we went to Yarkent which I've been to many times the holy sites were shut down every business had gates I mean bread sellers every single business had to have gates on their um, and that was all new 
Yeah, I mean. So why the gates? That you tell me. I, I mean, know, there's like nothing what? that makes sense. I mean, the other thing that I didn't see, but I know throughout the South they have a new um, policy called Big Brother Big Sister policy, where mm-hmm. they're putting Han men and women into the homes of the Uyghurs. Yes, I've heard that. And I actually met a young woman here whose parents live there, and they're doing that. That's their kind of job. They're teaching Chinese policy, but they're also reporting on, are they praying? What are they eating? How Muslim are they? Um, A whole village disappeared after three months of these big brother, big sister homestays. The whole village was put into camps. Children are being put into orphanages. Lisa, how are you dealing with this? You know, I mean, emotionally, this seems like really difficult. I mean, a region you've been visiting to, I'm guessing a lot of people you have relations to. I mean, one of your colleagues was disappeared, correct? Yeah, like my closest friend from the region, Rahila Dawood, who has been an amazing scholar and has helped so many people was arrested a year ago, December, and given a 10-year prison sentence. Worse than that is the president of the university, who's this incredible geologist, a wonderful man, was given a death sentence, two years to live in a death sentence. Wow. 56 professors from the university have been imprisoned. When I had an exhibition of living shrines at SOAS in London, at the Brunei Gallery, the Aga Khan Foundation funded uh, Sanubar Tursun to come and play music. She's a Uyghur musician who's this beautiful, incredible, traditional singer and musician. She plays the dutar. And two weeks before the exhibition opened, she was put into a camp. And we just don't know, like, you know, there are very few reports are coming out. And they're, although they're not death camps, a lot of people are dying and not being taken care of. We don't really know what kind of camps they are in a way, too. There's so many unknown questions around those camps. Uh, yeah, and the like during the exhibitions, you know, so many people reached out to me, and there are so many Uyghurs that cannot speak. And I mean, you asked how am I dealing with this? And you know, at one point I thought, okay, you know, like I've made so much work in in the Uyghur homeland, I think I'll move on to another project. But there's like no way, you know. And I've had like a mentor of mine is like, when are you going to stop, you know, making work there? And I just feel that I can't, you know, and that right. the only thing I can do at this point is help people tell their stories. So I just feel like moving forward right now, I'll do whatever I can to help people speak when they can speak and want to speak help give them voices through art because that's what i believe in yeah so i mean well i mean sometimes witnessing can be the most important right aspect of these types of things right uh, you know and, and you you become a witness and i can't sleep was an organic title <laughs> Right. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I was hanging, you know, trying to edit this body of work of, you know, people on their beds. And I thought, this is insane. While what's going on, how am I going to talk to what's happening? So, you know, it was really like sleepless months. I did end up making a uh, wall mural of photographs of Rahila as she was doing her ethnographic research that covers one 30-foot wall that the photograph, some of the photographs are shown on. And then there's the article that came out about her in the New York Times is also like installed in the space and the photo in the New York Times matches the photo on the wall. We also had a Uyghur anonymous artist and graphic designer create these graphic images of the disappeared scholars and artists and so we gave those out as well at the um, stickers of all these. Right. So I'm guessing that many of the Uyghurs you know are pretty frightened of what's going on. Is that an accurate way, or how would you how would you characterize that? Well, they're angry, okay, devastated. Mm-hmm. They they really are beautiful people. So when you ask, like, why did you keep going? Anyone that you meet that's had the luck, fortune of going to this region will speak about the Uyghurs as like an absolutely like incredible people because they have such a rich history, and their hospitality is over the top. You know, so I mean. People are starting to speak up because they don't want to disappear. This really has nothing to do with Islam. 
as far as I can tell. I think it's an excuse. I think it's racism. I think it has a lot to do with the Belt and Road Initiative. Which is the Chinese initiative to build across Central Asia straight up to Europe, right? Straight through Europe. Straight through Europe, that's right. Right. It's it's quite a big initiative. I mean, the funny thing, and it's not funny, but you you could say, well, there's only 11 million Uyghurs or 14 million or 15 million Uyghurs. You know, it's a small, you know, it's very strange. This is like the beginning of potentially the new Chinese empire. <laughs> like right. This guy is like not well, playing mean, around. And also, I mean, it's not any, you know, what they, what the Chinese did in Tibet, of course, is, you know, another type But the of, Tibet, they know. let the Tibetans out, right? right? So the larger part of the Tibetan community is now in a diaspora and they have right. a very strong diaspora. The Uyghurs don't have that. Right. So that's, there's a really big difference there. If you do, they're just, the people are there. Mm-hmm. It's a small diaspora. You know, with the Tibetans, I'm not saying it's a better situation mm-hmm. by far, but I'm saying with the Uyghurs, you really have the potential to eradicate an entire people, where with the Tibetans, they really did release them. Which is a very different. Uh, like you said, it might also be a sign of the new emerging Chinese hegemony in the region. That's for sure. So I'm curious, like, are you going to go back? Can you go back? Mm, well, I mean, can, you never know if you can go to China until you apply for your visa. And right. it's not until that moment that you do know. You, do you have um, to apply for a special visa for the no, Western region? No, yeah. it's not okay. like Tibet in that way. I got a report yesterday that a photographer, today actually, that a photographer tried to cross the Kyrgyz border, which I've been warned is not a good idea to get into Xinjiang. And um, they were uh, uh, detained for 48 hours, and her data card was taken. And despite the fact that she had reformatted it, there were photographs on there from Geneva. Everything from the past, they were able to get off of this card (laughs) that she had both erased and reformatted. Which just only goes shows nothing gets erased. Yeah, they canceled her visa. um, Not with the proper technology. Unfortunately, when we need it, we can't get it. But yeah, yeah, so I mean, will I go back? You know, gosh, I hope I go back. You know, I hope I go back and I hope this ends. And I hope the Chinese kind of realize that they don't have to destroy a people to be able to move forward with their initiatives of expansion. And so I hope I go back and I, I hope that the Uyghurs are allowed to continue to learn and speak in their own language and maintain their history and their history books. And Yalkun Rozi, who is a literary critic whose um, son has come to the came to the exhibition and um, his father was given a 15 year prison sentence for working on textbooks in uh, Uyghur language with wow. uh, you know their government every person that I'm talking about is part of the communist party and what they're being arrested for is what they've been given awards for so it, so the government no just rationale. changed their mind at the, at some point they're now being considered two-faced party members that's so terrible and you can't really argue that can you no have you been able to show some of your images to the Uyghur your Uyghur colleagues and uh, and some of the people that are in the photographs if I understand the question, uh, early on I would bring photographs back, yep. and that ended up being problematic. It's oh. something that I've always done historically. Whenever I photograph people that I don't know, and I get to to go back, but the sensitivity around the holy sites mm-hmm. and the sheikh, the guardian of the mazar, is such that I went to go give one of the sheikh photographs that I had taken of him a couple of years earlier, mm-hmm. and the police came, and they couldn't understand that this could be an old photo. And this practice was now forbidden two years later. Oh. And so it caused so many problems that I was told just don't bring old photos. <laughs> it's too problematic. Oh, that's so terrible. So I stopped doing that at that point. But, I mean, Rahila has used my photographs in her you know, in some of her lectures. So she's very familiar with my work. What do you think are some of the misconceptions of the situation with the Uyghurs in China that you'd like to correct for people? Is there is there anything? Well, just that, I mean, Islamophobia across the board. Mm-hmm. To learn about, I mean, you know, to learn about 
Islam so that it's everything is not put into this box of like fundamentalism. Right, the one monolith. So that's right. that that I, you know while I was photographing the shrines that that was definitely like somewhere in my thought is like that people could learn a little bit about Sufism. They might actually find it like incredibly interesting. It's pretty beautiful, yeah, um, when you start studying Sufi. Yeah, yeah so that was, that's one um, misconception. The other is that about the Uyghurs in general or about what's happening? Both. I mean, about what's happening, just how many artists there are, how many writers, poets, and scholars that are being interned which is showing us that, and they're not religious, many of them, I should say, are not religious, not all of them. And, and religion is infused in the cultural identity, right. in a sense. Right. Um, you know, when people say Uyghur, they say Turkic Muslim. So they're not Chinese, that's a misconception. They're Central Asian people. They're very connected to Uzbek. Mm-hmm. So I hope people get to see your project. It's up until February 23rd. Uh, the, the exhibition um, is at Miyako Yoshinaga Gallery, and it's on um, 547 West 27th Street on the second floor, Suite 204. Mm-hmm. And it's open Tuesday to Friday. And, and when does it close? It closes on March 16th, so it's up for over another two weeks. I'm there on Saturdays, if you want. Ah, so people can stop by and <laughs> talk to you about Saturdays the exhibition. if you would like. That, that and, would be a um, bonus. And people. also the Uyghur, there Thank is, you, I, ju- I also want to give a shout out to the Uyghur diaspora, because there is a Uyghur diaspora, and they are trying to speak, and they are trying to tell their stories. So, in addition to, you know, reading the news, like, keep your eyes open to hear from uh, Uyghur people. Go to Kebab Empire, which is a Uyghur-owned restaurant on 8th Avenue and 55th Street, 56th Street, and come visit and learn more. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Anthony, for joining us. And thank you for telling the story. And I hope people get to see the work and understand what's going on. And I'm so glad you were able to at least preserve some of these in images so that we can understand and see and, you know, because I think they are really haunting. And, uh, and I hope people will understand, you know, and hopefully it will galvanize them to learn more yeah. and maybe even do something and take action. Thanks Thank again. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. The music for this episode is People Are Glorious by renowned Uyghur musician Sanobar Tarsan, who worked with Lisa Ross on her project. Tarsen was arrested by Chinese authorities in December of last year. Her music, which you're listening to, is part of the album Music of Central Asia Volume 10 Borderlands, which you can find on iTunes and other music portals. I'm sure I'm not the only one who hopes she will be released soon. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Adamladin rencime kumlu Uvanmu sarxlin